for those of you who I don't know, my name is Brian Jarrell, and I wear many hats. I'm a contributor to the blog under Brian J. Uh, so if you see any of those posts, that's me. Nice to meet you. Um, I have a day job at West Virginia University in Morgantown, West Virginia, where I do marketing PR for the dining division of the Unity uh, University because it's such a big uh, division uh, at the school, big state school, lots of people. And by night, I work as a church planner. I'm a pastor at a church in Morgantown, West Virginia. Um, and so uh, this world of social networking is really interesting to me. I do it professionally. Uh, I have to go through Twitter searches and find what students are saying about campus dining hall food. That kind of dull, uh, dulls your soul a little bit after a while. Um, but it also interests me from a, a personal standpoint as well because of this whole identity conversation that we're having. Um, and so uh, I, the other thing that I do is I run the Mockingbird Facebook page so that the guys in uh, Charlottesville don't have to. So I load up a whole bunch of posts, and if anybody has a question on Facebook, I forward it to them. Uh, it's a, it's a, not a whole lot of work. But um, in this conference, I'm actually live tweeting because I'm a social networking nerd. If you are a Twitter person, I'm at uh, RevDeaconB. You can find me on Twitter uh, under the hashtag uh, imbirdnyc14. Um, I'm kind of a nerd about this sort of stuff. And uh, the title of this talk is The Passion of the Childish Gambino, Online Anticity and Instagram, uh, Online Honesty and Instagram Authenticity. Um, and uh, we're going to be talking about this overlap between authenticity, social networking, and uh, that whole world. Uh, this is the Childish Gambino uh, on the poster. His, he, that's his uh, stage name. You may recognize him as Donald Glover, uh, who's sort of a consummate entertainer in many spheres. We'll get to him in a second. Um, I want to begin by talking a little bit about authenticity as it actually kind of is a thing. Um, uh, many of you may remember Millie Vanilli from the early 90s, uh, Grammy award-winning and then Grammy rescinded uh, award-winning Millie Vanilli. Um, beautiful faces, uh, very good show. Turns out they were lip-syncing the entire time. Uh, and they, so they won this uh, Grammy Awards for their great music and then word got out that they lip-synced and uh, that they weren't actually the ones singing. They were the pretty faces in front of the music. Their Grammys were revoked, and it became a running joke for the next uh, 20 years and counting. Um, one of my favorite posts from Mockingbird recently, um, I say recently, last year, was a post called, um, uh, If Beyonce Lip Synced, You Made Her. Um, and it's a great commentary on um, the stresses that Beyonce went through as she was preparing to sing the national anthem at uh, President Obama's inauguration back in 2012. And uh, there was some great scandal when people found out that there was a backing track. So if anything happened to her while she was singing, there was a, a backup track uh, that would take over for her uh, in case National Anthem is a very complicated song. And uh, uh, people were scandalized by this. It was a very interesting uh, thing to read. And whoever wrote the post, I'm not sure who did, uh, said uh, the pressure, the enormous pressure that was put on Beyonce to nail the inauguration performance. Um, well, who wouldn't want a backup track there just in case you messed up? Um, and then perhaps most recently this past February, the band Red Hot Chili Peppers played the Super Bowl. Uh, they were the not Bruno Mars people who were playing during halftime, if you don't know the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And uh, the uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers have been around for a while. And people noticed when they played, when the Red Hot Chili Peppers played the Super Bowl, the guitars weren't plugged into anything. People said, why aren't the guitars plugged into anything? Like, there's no thing you could see. And some people thought they were very futuristic guitars that were doing all the transmission work to the soundboard. And it came out that the, the Red Hot Chili Peppers recorded a live set in that place with their musical instruments plugged in, played that track uh, over uh, their performance, and tried to make it as authentic as possible without actually... Uh, there being a possibility of them messing up the music during the halftime show of the Super Bowl. Um, three examples uh, from the celebrity world of where our demand for authenticity and our demand uh, for perfection uh, overlapped, and we, uh, there was a realization that perhaps we can't have both at the same time, um, that perhaps uh, this demand for perfection and this demand for authenticity are mutually exclusive at the end of the day. Um, and so that's the, the introduction I want to give you to Donald Glover. Donald Glover is one of my favorite actors, entertainers. 
um, in 2006 through 2009, he wrote for the TV show um, uh, 30 Rock. So if you're familiar with 30 Rock, he was one of the, you know, the writers. He was handpicked by Tina Fey while he was still living in an NYU dorm uh, to come start writing. So he's a, established himself as a very gifted writer from the very beginning, a very gifted comedy writer. And uh, he ended up in 2009 with the rest of the cast running a, winning a Writers Guild of America award for his writing on 30 Rock. And you can look at the award show, and he's there on stage. It's very interesting to see him in that light in 2009, especially in light of his transition to Community, the TV show that happened right after that. And so he wanted to make a jump from writing to acting. And Tina Fey, uh, is quoted up there in the corner, it's hard to read, she says essentially, other people I tell them to keep their day job, but uh, actually Donald Glover, yeah, he can do that. He can write and act. He's a very talented young man. Um, and so that's Calvin and Hobbes, that's him at Community, it's great. Um, in 2011, Donald Glover had his own uh, Comedy Central one-hour stand-up series called Weirdo. I can't recommend it to you from a church conference perspective. He talks about a lot of blue things. Uh, it's really funny, though. And so he has good enough to have his own stand-up uh, on Comedy Central as well. Um, and as all this is going on on one side, uh, he has a passion and a musical career uh, that he's working on on the other side. And in uh, 2008, he uh, put his name into a Wu-Tang Clan name generator, if you're familiar with the Wu-Tang Clan. Uh, Donald Glover went in as Donald Glover and popped out as Childish Gambino. And so that's his stage name. It's been his stage name uh, for the number of years ever since he's been recording music. Um, so he's an award-winning writer. Uh, he has his own stand-up special. He is uh, uh, a beloved actor on NBC's community. And he's a, a musician of some great caliber as well. Uh, that he raps. And uh, as Tina Fey, who sort of picked Donald out of the crowd, was commenting on this, she said uh, that Donald comes from a generation that is very confident in doing it all. Uh, they, that generation, are comfortable being rapper, actor, entrepreneur, fashion designer, author. I mean, lots of rappers uh, become actors. Why not do it the other way around? And so she recognized his talent. She recognized his unique ability. Um, and uh, sort of wished him well, but there's this hint of foreboding when she says that he comes from a generation that's very confident in doing it all. Um, it's a very interesting question. And uh, if you were to stop here um, in this timeline, which goes back to um, uh, August, uh, July, August of 2013, if that's all you knew about Donald Glover, you would think that he was a successful, upwardly mobile, really um, talented entertainer who's got nothing but a great future ahead of him, right? Um, that uh, he's, he's done so well in so many different fields, how can he not succeed? And then uh, it came out in August of 2013 that he had made a creative decision about his career to leave the TV show Community. And that's when things really started to open up for him because uh, Community is this weird show with a very passionate fan base that I'm actually kind of a part of. And so I was very sad to see my, one of my favorite characters go and so were millions of other fans. And so um, this is what the AV Club said about that. Um, adding another emotional twist to the wild roller coaster of, uh, that is the life of the community fan, Deadline reports that Donald Glover has signed on to create and star in his own FX comedy series, a project made possible by the fact that he's no longer a regular in community and that the show will, uh, likely, and that most likely the show is going to end soon. Also, everyone you love will eventually leave you, and then you two shall die. <laughs> and that's how um, the story goes. And it, it reflected that people were really anxious about this, that he was leaving their show. And they, they, they said all sorts of mean things, like, why are you leaving this good thing to go uh, rap? Like, this thing that made you and made you a public figure that people recognized. Um, this went on for months. Um, and when this came out, I mean, you're talking August, September, October, these things really were part of the conversation. If you were a community fan, if you were a television fan, if you were um, part of the celebrity gossip beat, um, this was a conversation that went on for a while. And um, this prompted, I think, uh, a significant amount of pressure on Donald Glover uh, to the point that he had a breakdown on Instagram in uh, October of 2013. And he was staying at a hotel room, and I'll show you them in just a second here. He was staying in a hotel room, and he wrote on the little notepad that comes in your hotel room a set of confessions. Um, they're very, oh, what's the word I want to use? Um, uh, there's seven of them. There's seven of these pictures on Instagram. You can go look them up for yourself. I'll show you some of the cleaner ones. They're very brutally honest. 
in a way that you don't expect from somebody who works in the world of comedy to work with. And so this is what he wrote. It's hard to read up there. I hope you can see it. Oh, it's not so bad. Uh, he wrote, I'm afraid of the future. I'm afraid that my parents won't live long enough to see my kids. I'm afraid my show will fail. I'm scared my girl will get pregnant and not at the exact time we want. I'm scared that I'll never reach my potential. Uh, there you go, right? I'm afraid she's still in love with uh, other dude or that dude. If you look down the bottom right there, it's very interesting. He scribbles this down on a thing that says ideas worth saving. Um, that's what it says there in the bottom left-hand corner of the, the, the hotel room stationery. And he goes on. He says, I'm afraid this is all an accident. I'm afraid um, I'll, I'm scared I'll be Tyrese. I'm afraid Dan Harmon, the writer of Community, hates me, or the creator of Community, excuse me. Um, I'm scared I won't know anything ever again. I'm scared I never knew anything. I'm afraid I'll regret this. I'm afraid this doesn't matter at all. I didn't leave Community to rap. I don't want to rap. I wanted to be on my own. I've been sick this year. I've seen uh, a bunch of people die this year. This is the first time that I felt helpless, um, but I'm not on that. Kept looking for something to be in with, following someone else, someone's blueprint, but you have to be on your own. I got really lost last year, but I can't be lonely though, because we're all here, we're all stuck here. I wanted to make something that says no matter how bad you mess up, or mistakes uh, you made during the year, uh, your life, your eternity, you're allowed to you're always allowed to be better. You're always allowed to grow up if you want. Um, this is way out of left field for somebody who seems like they have it all, whose star is on the rise, and who uh, is really um, respected in the, uh, the comedy world um, and many other worlds as well. And so when this came, this is how the internet responded. Um, the Huffington Post called it disturbing. Um, People.com called it uh, troubled. Slash Film said that these were worrisome posts. As one, somebody on Reddit posted about it, oh wow, in the beginning I kept waiting for a punchline until I realized that it was never coming. I really hope he's okay. Um, props to him for putting his fears out there. Um, I think what, what people are starting to get at is that something about his confession, something about his authenticity and sharing these things in a great public way it actually made people uncomfortable, um, weirdly enough, that um, these public these very intimate personal feelings were made public, and uh, suddenly the demand for authenticity um, didn't look uh, so peachy as well when you found some genuine authenticity. And it, wasn't, it didn't stop there. On the left, this is uh, Donald Glover hosting uh, the MTV College Music Awards. You'll see he's, he's polished up. He looks really great. He's really stylish. And on the other side is um, the week after he posted these Instagram notes, he went on the Arsenio Hall show, and um, he was the musical guest, and he was interviewed. And he's wearing a threadbare T-shirt. He's wearing shorts that look like boxers. He's wearing, like, slippers. Um, he hasn't shaved in a while. And um, it looks like he's not showering. I mean, he just looks almost um, bum-like. I mean, he's got the depression beard. Conan O'Brien had a depression beard after he got fired <laughs> from NBC. Um, it's very interesting that he went from this fancy, upwardly mobile, like, powerfully dressed, stylish person to somebody who looks like they don't care anymore. And all this is happening in the span of weeks in October of 2013. Um, I would be doing you all a great disservice if I didn't actually expose you to some of his music. Um, this is from a talk show that he was able to do, he did after the, these Instagram confessions back in February. And um, he freestyles this, so this is not like planned necessarily. He just has a beat and he's talking about what's going on off the top of his head. He's um, this showcases two things. It showcases, A, that he's a really good musician, and this makes my face melt how good he is. But also, um, some of the, the, the reactions he has to other people's reactions about his Instagram confessions. So let me play this for you. Live and direct. It's Sway in the morning. Right here on Shade 45. Sway in the morning. Drake's dad, boys. Don't music's going to last. <laughs> All that other bullshit. Gravelly. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, All right. I like this beat. It's a cool beat. Yeah. Okay. Um. Let them speak. I know I'm meek, but the mill's louder. Watch the throne. King's kill when the prince feels power. It's the real deal. Holy field, holy shit, holy grail, silver spoon, coon, young buffoon. Yeah, they know me well. I'm making moves, couldn't lose, doing Parker Lewis. 
Hot on my own, self-emulate, I could be a Buddhist. Hot on my own, check your tone, check your stance, homie. You don't even like me, you just trying to get my fans, homie. So nerdy, but the flow wordy. Brain freezing with the flow slurpy. Ice cold, but you know I burn cash like I had herpes. Not true, but I'm that dirty. Niggas quit being hot, man, cold turkey. While I'm out in Kauai, man, soul searching. And these niggas be afraid, and I'm so certain. Cause they don't know what to do when the world's broken. A lot of people try and go and talk shit, but your girl stopped me on the street like it's stopping frisking. A bunch of D dots wanna talk a lot of shit, but that's cool, cause in the real world, they really don't exist. It's all because the internet. Chance made millions, Hein made millions, Dan made millions, Kendrick made millions. I would too if I wasn't in my feelings. You know, cause like, the people say money's not everything, but money, it, you need money to do what you want to do. Like money is power, honesty is power, truth is power, you know what I'm saying? Word, word. Like, that's, that's, what, like, that's what I'm saying. That's but at the same time, they be tell you like, you know, there ain't nothing more important than the moolah. We ain't really eating, boy, you gotta get your food up. We so steady eating, baby, you already know that. The way I'm dropping new shit, I'm sitting on the toilet. Every night I told that moment, but we don't take pictures. When you're rich, you just see it again. The only thing they really worry about is me in the pen. Roll some shit on Instagram, I'm just being honest. They tried to give your boy pills like I'm being violent. They tried to give your boy pills just to keep him silent. Keep telling people the truth, you could be iconic. They tried to give your boy pills like you scaring us. Tried to stay inside, I don't really like appearances. I tried to stay inside, but they still got something to say. Are you still on the show? Are you dating Janae? It's deeper than that. Calico inside the handbag, I'm keeping the cat. I got some niggas in reserve like I'm deep in the rack, and I'm deep in the rap, and it's deeper than rap. This is deeper than rap. Deeper than rap, yo. Yo, let the beat play until that cake part comes out. I like that part. <laughs> I like that part. Childish Gambino, think about it. Because <laughs> it's deeper than yeah. rap. Let it yo, play. Cash rules everything around. Uh, yeah. yeah. I like it. Cake, 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 birthday cake. Black and white. Dough, that's a zebra cake. Pancakes, <laughs> wedding cakes. Yeah, that's, that's, all, that's all I want. So at one point, I don't know if you saw it, the, the radio announcer's right there. He looks up at the camera and says, are you recording this? Like he's so flabbergasted that all this is coming from the top of his head. He's such a talented musician. Uh, and this is, this is something um, people were very skeptical about Donald Glover as an as a actual serious musician. And uh, so the, the rap community was like, who is this guy? Like, what is he doing? And then this video came out, and they were like, oh, shoot. Like, he really is that good. Like, he is an excellent musician, and he's really good at what he does. Um, and the, the pertinent part, he, he, he drops this, and it's, it's great. He says, wrote some things. He doesn't say things. Wrote some things on Instagram. I'm just being honest. Uh, trying to give your boy pills like I'm being violent. Trying to give your boy pills just to keep him silent. Uh, keep telling, the wor- telling people the truth. You could be iconic. Um, that just struck me as so um, thoughtful in terms of uh, he, he exposes his authenticity. He just is honest uh, as a celebrity. And people tell him to um, go take some pills and you know come back tomorrow morning. Very dismissive way of understanding whatever it is that Donald Glover is going through. Um, he says uh, in, uh, to People.com in October, he says, I was just tired of telling people I was tired. It felt like every day someone would ask, what's wrong? Are you okay? And I would say, I'm tired, I'm tired. Um, I don't want to do that anymore. I guess sometimes not telling the truth uh, is just as bad as telling a lie. Um, uh, Just very personal things uh, that Donald Glover has said. And to be honest, I don't think it was just leaving community. Um, In some interviews, he talks about um, uh, sickness. He talks perhaps about a, a failed suicide attempt. I mean, this is very serious emotional territory that he's bearing out for the world to see as a cry for help. And uh, he's being very authentic about it. And the world, generally speaking, at least the people with uh, power and voice, aren't responding well to his inability to meet the standards of their perfection. Um, which begs the question, why is it said that we want authenticity? Or why do we tell people just to be yourself? When in the face of genuine authenticity like this, um, the people who want the authenticity use words like worried, troublesome, and disturbing. Um, I think that's one of the questions, one of the key questions that we'll be going through, um, that there's this tension where we say we want authenticity and we want perfection. Those two things are um, 
part and parcel of, of our demands for not just our celebrities necessarily, but who we meet on the street and our, our family relationships and our marriage relationships and our friendships. And you can't necessarily have authenticity from some other person and expect to be able to control it um, and to do what you want with it. So that's my introduction to where I'm going tonight, uh, this afternoon. Uh, a very long introduction that you get to know Donald Glover a little bit. I hope you like some of his music. He just came out with an album called Because the Internet. Uh, from what I've listened to, it's really good. Um, and so I, um, if, if, if that's your world, I invite you to, um, to try him out. Anyway, um, what I want to do now is I want to spend a few minutes talking about a summary of this authenticity online conversation we've been having. Um, Mockingbird has been writing about this for a long time, and lots of different people have added their bits and pieces. There's the, the TED Talks from some people, and then there's articles from the New York Times, and there's a whole lot that's going on, and I'm going to try to condense all that in the next few minutes here in terms of where we've been um, in terms of the social networking world, our demand for authenticity, and our demand for perfection as well. Uh, so this comes from the Wait But Why column of the Huffington Post. It's a very interesting... Um, I think it's an interesting diagram that talks about the difference between our expectation and our reality, right? Um, they cheat. They make reality brown and sad. <laughs> and then they, um, the, the sort of main character they're working with here, the stick figure, uh, looks up and, and sees the expectation, which is uh, poetically described with a unicorn vomiting a rainbow. <laughs> and uh, the, the article um, and what many people have posited is that when your equation in life is that happiness is equal to expectation plus or minus your reality, when that's the uh, equation that you're working with, um, then you're generally going to be met with um, frustration, disappointment, and I would add resentment as well. Um, the, the, if that's the equation you're going to work with, uh, then that's, this is the model that you're going to see. This is a picture of that model where your expectations and your reality are so different that you can never be happy. Um, and uh, I think, it, for example, and this works to some degree in, in lots of different spheres. If, you, if this is your first time at Mockingbird, and you came to Mockingbird with some great expectation about what it would be, and then you got here and you realized what it really was, uh, for some of you, that may be great, and you're running happy. It's, it's better than what you thought it would be. And for some people, it may be not the case, and that's fine. Um, uh, for those of you who are How I Met Your Mother fans, um, some, uh, I don't know if anybody else is. I am. I saw the finale, and it destroyed me. I, I hated the finale. The show's over. It's been on for like nine years, and the finale just ruined it. So here's my expectations for the, ne the, the final episode of How I Met Your Mother. Here's the reality of what it was. Oh, man, I was disappointed, and I was resentful, and I was frustrated. Um, what social media does is it takes this diagram and adds an extra layer to it. Um, so here's our, our stick figure now is looking not at other people in their reality, but looking at them in their social networked curated selves, right? Perhaps it's a really pretty picture that's been filtered and made to look great on Instagram. Perhaps it's an update in your Facebook status about some great success. Uh, these are sort of the things that, you, that our, our protagonist in these pictures sees in other people's lives. Um, and so not only does this protagonist, the stick figure, uh, have the frustration and disappointment of not being able to meet her own expectations in life. But when she sees these curated images that come from social networks of happiness and joy and um, no bad pictures and great hair days from everyone else in her, on her Facebook news uh, feed, from everyone else on her Twitter or whoever she follows on Instagram, um, it also adds on top of these emotions envy and inadequacy, right? And the, the, the element that's coming into play there is in reality, everyone's in the exact same spot. But it's hard to see that through the curated identities that people put online. Uh, what they like, what they're doing, who they're hanging out with. I mean, people, um, there's a very good chance people could be looking at me and hearing that I'm in Mockingbird and that I'm in New York City and I got to go to the Museum of Modern Art. And people are going to look at that. Um, I'm just happy. I'm having a good time. But people are going to look at that and say, oh, well, I've never been to New York, and I've never been to the Museum of Modern Art, and I'm, I want to go to New York, and I just have a bad job here in Morgantown or something like that. And, you know, I'm not, there's no animosity in my, my, my feeds. I just happen to be having a good time in New York. But that very fact um, precludes some people from being able to enjoy their own lives because I have an opportunity that they didn't. And when it's put up on social uh, networking, and they don't see the... Um, the, the, the hard stuff, they don't see the eight-hour bus ride, and they don't see the, um, 
you know, the, the, the other elements or the bad parts of, of coming to New York, the 45-minute commute every morning back and forth to where I'm staying and the five-floor walk-ups, that makes it a little less glamorous, doesn't it? But in reality, uh, that part isn't shown on social networks. Um, and so there's this idea that the who I am, who I've curated in myself online, and who other people see are so completely different, even in my own experience, um, that it creates all of this negativity that you have to deal with in some way, shape, or form. Um, but more important than that, I think, is this question right now, is that can one be loved in his or her crafted image? Um, can somebody be uh, loved in that crafted image, in that carefully curated image? Tim um, Kreider talked about it. He says, can you be fully known and fully loved? I mean, or you can only be fully loved if you're fully known. And so even though there's this uh, push to have these curated identities online, when it comes to actual human relationships, um, those walls have to start crumbling down if there's going to be anything about it, um, if there's going to be any change about it. Um, the, uh, the, the, the questions become, how can I trust other people uh, to take down their walls and their curated identities? And when I get to see them for who they really are, can I trust them, A, with my own... Can I trust them with my own letdown walls? Can they trust me with their letdown walls? And when I see who they really are, am I still going to want to be in a relationship with them? Whether that's friendship or courtship or professional relationship, all those things. Um, and what social media does is, I mean, and that sort of thing, it's not necessarily new. It's what cocktail parties, everywhere. That, that's another thing. People don't talk about like cocktail parties and the identity. And you only talk about your good things. You don't talk about bad things. You don't talk about religion and politics at a cocktail party. Um, so you don't necessarily, a cocktail party is not the time and the place to necessarily be your authentic self and to, you know, spill on people. Um, but social media almost makes it like a 24-7 cocktail party where you always have to, you know, not talk about religion, not talk about politics, put your best foot forward. Um, this is nothing new. It's just 24-7. And it's 24-7 of T.S. Eliot's protagonist in the poem uh, Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Um, if you're familiar with Eliot, this is one of his famous poems, and uh, I'm going to read a portion to, of it to you now. In the room, the women come and go, uh, talking of Michelangelo. And indeed, there will be time to wonder, do I dare? And do I dare? Time to turn back and descend the stair with a bald spot in the middle of my hair? They will say, how his hair is growing thin. And my morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin, my necktie rich and modest, but asserted with a simple pin. They will say, oh, but how his arms and legs are thin. Do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute, there is time for decisions and revisions, which a minute will reverse. Um, this is a poem about a, uh, someone who's past the prime of life, um, who's still in that social scene. Um, it's a beautiful poem, and I commend it to you. It's a poem of loneliness and trying to fit in. And no matter what he does, there is some great fear, <laughs> the fear of being seen for who he is that, that uh, takes um, Alf <laughs> uh, and, and isolates him in this great anxiety. Um, do, I, do I dare? I mean, if I go back and I go down the stairs and just leave altogether, people are going to see my, my, my bald spot. And if I stay, even though I'm dressed really well, then people are going to say, well, I mean, look at how thin and gaunt he, he is. And any decision that you make in that time, is there's enough time to reverse the decision too, so why even make a decision in the first place? Um, but that level of anxiety um, is something that can be, and for many people uh, that I know, it is a product of what happens when the social network and the curated life become the main ways in which human beings interact with each other. And so at the root of it all is this great fear. Um, this great fear that as the curated identity starts to be removed and you start to expose yourself to another human being, uh, hopefully for their love, but at the risk of their judgment, um, that there's this great fear of unknowing how someone will react when they know who you really are. Um, that's what happens. That's the fear that drives the curated life. That's the fear that drives um, the sort of uh, posturing that lots of folks do on social networking. Um, uh, I'm going to show you a trailer for something. I'm, I'm going to tell you, it's an MTV show called Fat, uh, Catfish. Is anybody familiar with the show? Like, show of hands, a few people are. If you're not, you're in for, for a treat. This is a trailer for it. It's, it's, oh, it's so ripe for this discussion. Um, let me play it for you. 
All right, this is a good one. Dear Neve, I'm in an online relationship with the greatest guy ever. And we have officially been dating for the last two years, for about three years now online. For 10 years, one problem. We haven't met yet. Short of photos and phone conversations, I have not actually seen her or talked to her in person. We've tried to meet almost a dozen times. I need the help of someone who's been through this experience before, and that's you. I'm desperate to meet the man of my dreams. Let's go. <laughs> Come on, are you crazy? Neve, we're gonna miss the flight. We are heading to Atlanta now. Rochester. Going to Mississippi. Hey. Hey. Hi. Hey, man. Doing? The connection we built is really something once in a lifetime. It's an unconditional love. I don't know what I would do without him. I love her. You know, I love Abby. I just hope he is. Always is. The next step for us is to sort of dig in. Yeah, go ahead and investigate. Okay, ready, Max? Let the research begin. Uh-oh, we got something. He's married. <laughs> no. It means that the person she's been talking to is a fake. He says she's who she says she is. This it's is her. It checks out. This could just be another fake profile. This is bad news. She's a catfish. Oh, my God. Is any of it bad? I just don't want to be disappointed. Who is this person? I spoke to Matt. Mm-hmm. He will meet you. Oh, my God. 30 minutes, 30 minutes away. Tyler, you want to hit go? Oh, scared. Oh, my God. Tell me about it. Oh, my God. This is so weird. I cannot believe it's you. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> what's up? Are you okay? No, not I at don't... all. I just don't understand what's going on. Guys, 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 guys. Hello? Talk about uh, it's just everything wrapped up in the into one, right? The, the the cultivated identity, the online anonymity, the fear of meeting somebody else. Um, of course, when all of those things come together in such a convenient thing like online dating, uh, the, what you do is you turn it into a reality TV show and make money off of it. <laughs> but um, the the show is called Catfish, and the whole thing is people who've never met each other online and are having an online relationship of some sort. Uh, there's this back and forth. They've been they've known each other for a while, but they've only had online contacts with one another. And so um, this filmmaker uh, goes, finds these the the, the couples, and then uh, facilitates the introduction. So you get to see in full effect who these people are when they meet for the first time, and the the anonymous barrier of the internet falls to the side. And um, the the show features you know people who think they're in relationships, and the person on the other end is their high school bully. Um, who is trying to make life miserable for this person by building up a, a, a loving relationship and then tearing it apart, right? Um, it's, uh, there is true love that is found, or some element of true love that's found on the show, right? People meet, and they actually are the people that they say they are. Um, and then people you meet, and they're completely different. In fact, the, uh, the cameraman who, who's the star of this show made a documentary film about his own experience of getting catfished, where um, he fell in someone with on, uh, online, and uh, sort of got to meet this person, the whole family that's online, and went to travel out to the Midwest and meet this person. And who he thought was a sort of 20-something professional was actually a middle-aged woman uh, who was living alone in her parents' basement who had kept their relationship going. I mean, it's just absolutely wild. Uh, some of the stories that are out there where people are so desperate for intimacy um, in, in some contexts uh, that um, uh, uh, they'll take the intimacy that comes from an exclusively online relationship um, and they won't necessarily risk the meeting because they don't want it to be untrue. Um, that fear is something I think is a major part of this. Um, some people have said Catfish is fake, the TV show. It may be. There may be some elements to it. Um, it there's a, the, if that's the case, then that's a whole other talk on authenticity anyway. Authenticity in reality TV. Oh, boy. Um, and so that's next year's Mockingbird. Uh, anyway, um, the, there's actually something in the magazine that came with the bag. Someone wrote about it. Was it the... Uh, Lug not Laguna Beach, the real Orange County or something like that. Uh, I forget, it's brilliant. It touches on that very well. Um, 
and so the fears that come with our online personas, the fear that come with our regular personas, I mean, it's just uh, wild how many of these things come together. There's a fear of living up to a social standard of perfection. By perfection, we don't necessarily mean like holiness, like righteousness in a God sense. We kind of just mean don't be awkward. <laughs> don't like step on anybody's toes. Um, and we say that like it's a simple thing, and we clearly know that it is not. Um, remember uh, the discomfort that Donald Glover's confessions caused many people, right? Um, that that sort of discomfort is not something that goes into the standards of how you interact with people socially, online, or in real life. Um, so there's a fear that you're going to break the sort of social rules. There's even a fear of showing some weakness or frustration within that system of perfection. Um, so uh, when you can't measure up to those rules, not only are you excluded from that group, but you become the ob- you can become an object of other people's community in that process when they are able to say, oh well, uh, you know, oh my gosh, did you see what so and so posted today? I mean, like, you know, get a therapist, am I right, or something along those lines? That your um, or somebody's inability to um, they show weakness, they show failure, um, that that becomes an exclusionary thing in a very serious way. That other people use that to bolster their own situations. Um, there's a fear of expectations being let down. I mean, we saw the same thing with catfish. We saw the same thing with a diagram a minute ago. Um, there's a fear of trusting others with vulnerable moments. This story broke my heart uh, as I read it in the news the other day. Uh, any uh, Snapchat people here? Um, my wife has had Snapchat, but I don't right now. She really likes it. And the, the, the thing about Snapchat as a social network is you take a picture, it sends it to somebody else, and the picture only is viewable for 10 seconds or something before it disappears into wherever. So it's like being able to share something that goes away, so you have a little bit more control over it. You can share something intimate, and there's no proof of it. Um, except that you can take screenshots of your phone with the picture on it, and you can still keep the picture. There are ways around this uh, privacy world. And there was a high school football program, and their boyfriends would get their cheerleader girlfriends to send them um, uh, scandalous naked pictures on Snapchat. And then they would take the screenshots of it, and then they pass it around to all their football player buddies, um, the, the naked pictures of their girlfriends. And um, it's a heartbreaking story because there's a sense of trust that's been seriously violated there in both legal uh, and uh, emotional ways. Um, there's a fear of losing control over one's cultivated identi- identity, one's curated identity. Um, my, one of my favorite business elements and uh, stories is this, is that there, uh, McDonald's was marketing on Twitter. And when McDonald's marketed it on Twitter, they started a hashtag called McD Stories. And uh, the idea was that you would tell your story about a great memory you had at McDonald's. You would hashtag it with uh, McD Stories. And people would be able to go away from that, uh, find that hashtag, and look at all these great stories of people eating at McDonald's and have a great... I mean, you're, you're kind of snickering now, right? <laughs> this is very high in the, pie in the sky for anybody who's ever been on Twitter. And what happened was, it didn't take long before this hashtag launched. McDonald's said, tell us all your stories that you love eating about McDonald's. And people would say, uh, my favorite McDonald's uh, memory is when I went to the clean bathroom in McDonald's, because it had never happened before. And my favorite story of eating McDonald's was the time that I found the fingernail in my french fries or something. I mean, just really atrocious stuff. And McDonald's lost control over this hashtag. They tried to, to quit it. Uh, but by the time they were able to, to, to delete their own... Uh, invitation to share their stories, it had gone, uh, it started trending, it had become a big thing, everyone was jumping on the bag wagon, and so it was a very popular thing for a day to hate on McDonald's on Facebook. They lost control over their cultivated image by trying to let other people help define it, interestingly enough. And then there's a, a fear of real life social fallout that can make for, emo- that, that can make an emotional or spiritual fallout even worse. I think one of the, the silly demands that we have, this part of being authentic, is being authentic in front of people who don't deserve it. Um, being in front, uh, authentic in front of people who are going to only take that and use it as a way to hurt or make the pain even worse. Um, it's, so it's sort of like what happened with Donald Glover when he uh, had his Instagram confessions and people responded by saying, you should get pills or uh, you're doing it just for the money or you know what I mean? That there's this authentic... Uh, there's this, this authenticity where you put yourself out there, and there is judgment um, that can come from anonymous sources. There's just no grace in that world. Um, why would you want to be authentic with someone who isn't able to give you grace? And all this really boils down to the fear of being alone, um, the fear of being rejected, the fear of not measuring up, um, the fear of being found out. Um, 
And I think uh, uh, that's sort of a, a long way to get to a conclusion that we already knew, that the reasoning behind our uh, cultivated identities was that we are so desperate to fit in, and we're so desperate to get some sort of connection, be it very weak with our online social networking or very strong with the relationships we build with, with friends. Um, we just don't want to be alone. Um, uh, we were not made to be alone, uh, to paraphrase Genesis. Um, and so the, the trick is that when you put all of this together, there's a paradox that you run into. And here it is, um, that the fear of being alone um, and unloved, it leads to the curated personality. It leads to that, that picture you saw where people's realities were, were pretty lame, but their expectations were really high, and everyone's living that life. But the problem with that, again, the paradox of it is that because um, our curated personalities create barriers that leave, uh, they, they leave one unloved and alone. And so the, the general gist of trying to retreat into a social network to um, manage your identity, to curate it as best as you can, um, because you don't want to be lonely and you don't want to be rejected, uh, leaves you lonely anyway. Um, so what happens... You have what happens when someone comes to you, um, and this is the great, the, the great question. When someone comes to you with, and their expectation of you is this, but your reality is that. And what happens when that um, unhappiness and that disappointment and that resentment and the frustration is targeted at you? Um, and so in some sense, if people are working with this equation, this uh, happiness is equal to the relationship between your expectation and your reality, um, that doesn't work for anybody doesn't even work for people who are in that system. Uh, and so there's a cycle. There's a fear of being alone that leads to a cultivated identity. Um, and then you start discovering other people's real identity. And then you get scared because what if people actually find out your real identity? And you get, you're afraid of being alone. And so you cultivate your identity some more. And then you discover someone's real identity. And it makes you even more scared about finding it out. And there's this vicious cycle um, that stems from this fear of being alone. Uh, that fuels our online activity and our attempts to make it right on social networks. Um, the, uh, the one solution that some people have said to breaking the cycle is that they think the command to be authentic is going to break it. They think that the law, um, the command to be an authentic human being, to throw yourself out there and be yourself, is going to break this cycle. Um, that if we could somehow stop this process of the cultivated identity, it's going to break the cycle. But the root of the cycle is not the cultivated identity. I think this is something that's intuitive and easy to find out. The root of the cycle is the fear of being alone. Um, and so when we come to people who are so scared of intimacy, who are so scared of feeling rejected, whose online lives are so perfectly curated um, to the point where we don't know if they actually, uh, if they themselves know who they are, um, the command to be authentic does nothing for that because it, it only makes the fear of being alone even worse. And so instead, um, if we can find some way of dealing with that fear of being alone, if we can find something there, uh, maybe we can break the cycle. And that's where we at Mockingbird actually have some good news. Um, in John uh, chapter 4, uh, we read of Jesus, the woman, the well. Um, Jesus uh, comes into town in Samaria, and there is a woman at noon who's drawing water from a well. It's a sign from the text that tells us um, she was sort of socially ostracized. She wasn't a part of the community. She wasn't there with the rest of the women earlier in the day getting water. And uh, Jesus rolls into town, and he strikes up a conversation, give me something to drink, and they go back and forth for a little bit. And uh, Jesus says to her, you can pick up in 16 here, go uh, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. Uh, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Um, it's interesting because in some circumstances, that revelation, the, the knowledge that Jesus has of that intimate detail, would drive people up the wall and drive them away. What, I mean, what a terrible thing to have somebody who knows everything about you tell you that to your face. And yet, what Jesus did with this woman was to give her time, to spend time with her, give her dignity, um, to give her a love that no one else in her community was giving her. And um, the knowledge and the, that there was a safe place in Jesus actually freed her to go back to the community 
what she does later on in this text and say, come and see the man who's told me everything that I've done. Um, it's a beautiful text, very beautiful text. And that's buttressed by something from 1 John, um, a very important verse to this work. Um, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Um, and so if you want to break the cycle, right, the fear of being alone, um, only a one-way love can do that. A one-way love that's from outside of the cycle, um, an external love that knows us better than perhaps we even do ourselves, where there's no fear of rejection, um, there's only blessing and there's only help. And I think you see that reflected in good marriages. You see that reflected in good friendships and other good contexts. And I think that only goes to serve um, the, the point that that's the power. Um, it's the power. Uh, Huey Lewis in the News, right? That's the power of love. Um, I want to conclude with two stories. Uh, DZ stole my thunder on this one, uh, uh, talking about Kay Warren. He, he mentioned that on his opening talk, so um, you can go back and listen to that. I'll spend a, a, just a moment or two there. Um, the thing that spurred uh, the interview with Kay Warren that DZ talked about was a Facebook post. Um, it was a Facebook post in which she spent like 700 words. It was, it was a long one talking about her frustration about being a pastor's wife a year after her son's suicide. And she said, I want to thank people who've been really supportive, but I also need to, to get something out there, that our lives have changed because of my son's suicide. And some of you have been asking, you know, we need Rick and Kay Warren back. We need the old Rick and Kay Warren back. So when we get the old, you know, when are you going to be back? When are you going to be back? When are you going to be in the fight? Like, we need this. We need this. And her response was, um, you don't get them back. Um, that that, that uh, you have, we have changed and we have changed permanently. And our ministry and our understanding of God and our understanding of, of what it means to be pastor and pastor's wife are so fundamentally altered by our son's um, tragic death um, that it's time for something new. We've got to narrow down and buckle down and talk about things differently now. Um, very powerful words, um, which echo, in some sense, what the Childish Gambino had said, right? These very powerful words of, of confession, of just heartfelt honesty that are thrown out into the social networking world. Um, and whereas everyone thought um, that the Childish Gambino should go get medicine and uh, find a counselor, People have been so super supportive of Kay Warren. It's been really interesting, that dichotomy. And, uh, you know, tens of thousands of likes and shares and all those metrics, interviews in different magazines where she's been able to come out with some authenticity and say that um, I have to believe in a God who loves me no matter what um, because life is the way it is. <laughs> That's the only God that can be good in situations like my son's suicide. Um, so I recommend her to you, and I want to end with this story. Um, this is uh, Amy Fout. You guys don't know her. She is the mother of my high school friend, um, Blake. Um, Blake and I went to, excuse me, elementary school. Uh, Blake and I went to elementary school together, and um, uh, we lost contact. We went off to college. Uh, but in college, it was a very sad situation. He um, died as a result of medical malpractice, and this was seven, year, uh, seven years ago this March. Um, and this is right as Facebook was taking off that this happened. I, I, uh, and it was very odd because it's one of the first instances where you had a Facebook page of somebody who had just deceased. Um, his photo has changed. All these things haven't changed in seven years. This is what his Facebook page looked like when he died. And um, his mother, um, whom I love dearly, has continued to use that Facebook page as a wailing wall uh, for her grief for seven years now. Um, her most recent post was um, last month. <laughs> where she talked about and talks about and, and communicates to her son in a way to help manage the grief through Facebook. Um, and in the early part of Facebook, they hadn't come up with a, with a theory. What do we do when someone dies and has a Facebook? And um, they told my friend's mother that, well, you know, he's passed. It's time to shut down his Facebook page. And uh, being the hard-fighting mother that she is, um, she went and got the media all over it. <laughs> How dare the, you know, Facebook shut down the Facebook page of my uh, recently deceased son and, you know, that sort of thing. And um, it helped shape a policy in which that page is now back and it hasn't changed for seven years and people still go there as a place for um, comfort and solace. Um, what an interesting inbreaking of reality into the social networking world um, that for seven years this page has remained unchanged, uh, a testament to a life that could have been 
and a place where you can come and grieve in a, in a, in a minor way, but an important one about um, uh, the tragedy and the hardship of the world. Um, and if this is the sort of authenticity we're talking about, um, the thing that fuels this, uh, it does for my friend Blake's family, it did for Kate Warren, um, it does for many other situations like this, is the knowledge and the rootedness of a God who doesn't, um, uh, who doesn't try to tell you to take your Facebook page down and stop grieving. Um, a God who is there in your own authenticity, who loves you as you are and not as you should be, who loves you in your actuality and not your potential. Um, a God who loves you in those moments, um, that's when you start to see authenticity flourish, and that's when you start to, to see these things inbreak into our curated world. And so with that, uh, thank you for your time. I think that's all I have. We have some time for Q&A if anybody has any questions. So thank you very much for coming. <laughs> any thoughts, any questions? Uh, do we have the microphone? We can pass it over here. We have about five, five, ten minutes or so for questions before dinner time comes. So, I would say, well, Jeremy, and then we'll pass it over here. Sure, it's more of a comment than a question, but sure, just as it. you were talking about this last bit, it's like, because I think people are asking that question, like, what, what is the, the, the thing about social curation that's going to change it, and like, death, and it makes so much sense, actually, in a sense, and it's like, the tombstone, you know, like, mm -hmm. people come to grieve. I'm not sure. That's just it really caught me off guard. Yeah, it's Facebook is a digital tombstone. So we get over here, and then we'll, we'll come back there. I'm not sure how to phrase this, and I feel at a disadvantage because I uh, was not here for the, not for at the all. talk. <laughs> I know someone who rewrote history in her Facebook hmm. uh, persona. and was dealing with life and death issues. Hmm. And the dilemma of slander mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. was involved regarding someone who had died. Mm -hmm. And over the last 14 years, as, you know, since the death of that person, Increasingly, over the last couple of years, um, Facebook began, became a way that she could self-justify mm. her actions regarding mm -hmm. his death mm. and the history of what led up to that. Mm. What can one do, if anything, other than to believe that God is sovereign and loving. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, too, that in this online world, um, it's uh, in, this, in real life as well as the online world, um, the idea of control and trying to control what other people think and what other people say, um, it's so hard and it's, it's nearly impossible. And um, in, the, in moments like that, you just have to trust that um, you know, God, God is going to work things out in the end. I mean, there's no easy answer. Um, and it's doubly and triply and quadruply frustrating when you realize you have no control over it anyway. So thank you for sharing. Absolutely. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Is there any way uh, in your reflection on all of this that we can, um, as leaders in churches or as leaders among other people, subvert the way that... Uh, social media naturally causes us all to curate or do you think that that's inherent and unbeatable problem of these platforms like you know without being yeah. crazy about it and being you know i guess the other side of what i'd love to hear from you is authenticity where it's just it's spewing on a page and becomes almost un people right. when that happens too much people can't handle it or you know yeah. what i mean you know no, what exactly I mean? right yeah. um the, uh, a word that I, I, I've used before is called um, exhibitionism, uh, when uh, you're sharing things not just to share them because you're sharing them, but you're sharing them to get a rile out of somebody, or you're sharing them to get a response, perhaps. Um, and so there's, a, I think, the way that you 
Um, and this has been, I don't want to prescribe any easy answers or anything like that, but the way that I've been thinking about it is um, when you, uh, I mean, it's sort of like a cocktail party, like how do you change the dynamics of a cocktail party, right? You, you go to a cocktail party, you're there at a cocktail party, you're schmoozing, you're hanging out, you're telling everybody what you do, tell them where you're from, and, um, but things start to fall apart a little bit when you don't take any stock in it. And so the more you talk about how everybody's faking it, uh, the more you talk about sort of, um, in more, uh, I mean, you don't need, for example, the tweet like 2 a.m. and I'm sitting on the toilet with irritable bowel syndrome or something like that, right? Like there's an element where those things, uh, they may be true, but they don't necessarily need to be shared. Um, the, um, uh, 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 and um, I think there's just a wisdom that comes from that that is not uniquely online, but it's in person as well. So I don't know if this has been the case that you can, you can bounce back and forth, but, but if someone's generally a nice, pleasant person in real life, they tend to have a more nice, pleasant you know, socially um, uh, well-curated, I guess is the word. Uh, if someone's polite and well-mannered in real life, then their online presence is polite and well-mannered. And when you start to see a difference there, then that's where your sort of a yellow flag goes up. Um, and so uh, I think at that point, you start to love on them and see what happens. Um, you don't need to call them out. I, I don't think that's, that, that's part of the walls coming down that keeps tells people to keep the wall going up. Um, but instead, I think in those moments um, that if you can deal with it in the real life, in a, in a more private, safe, loving way, then it starts to have ripples that affect the social life as well. So that's the thing about the social world. It's all, um, it's all uh, digital. It's all out there. And it's always a manifest manifestation of what's going on in here, right? Um, so anyway. Yeah, I, I'm a youth minister, and I work with teenagers. And mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the, the students I see are just like completely addicted. Oh yeah. To social media and, and mm -hmm. technology, and I just wanted to ask if you have any insights on when they put their phones down, how right. the compulsive uh, social media consumption mm -hmm. affects people in their you know real life interactions. Sure. Yeah. Um, I uh, I think social media is uniquely attuned to teenagers in a way that's not the same for when you start to reach your. Uh, 20s and beyond, um, I, I've had very little but some education in sort of child psychology and educational theory. And the age of like 12 to like 20 is defined by a youthful search for identity. And so in those moments, you really start to experiment with um, insiders and outsiders and popular and unpopular. Um, what clique do I belong to? Which um, clothes am I going to wear? Who am I going to hang out with? Like that's a very teenagery thing and it's something that's um, sort of a stage of development. Is that Eric Erickson? Can someone, any, anybody, like me on that? So I think there is something that's uniquely, um, uh, uh, there's a unique fit between how social, uh, social networking works in the identity world and how teenagers operate. Um, when they put the phone down, I do think there's a totally, um, uh, there's, there's huge ways that it affects the brain, there's huge ways that it affects everything else. I mean, uh, the, the, a teenager once said to me that it used to be you just had to put up with all that stuff at high school, and then you could come home during the day, you hang out with your family, and you're relaxed. But now you're online all the time, so you have to do that identity management all day long. It's so tiring and so so frustrating. Um, so um, uh, there, there are some people who are writing on that right now. I think uh, I don't want to um, – I, I won't say too much more because it's not an area with which I have a lot of expertise. But I think knowing that social networking is uniquely catered to teenager um, – psychological patterns and knowing that um, that it's taking high school and making it 24-7 I think are two, two steps in that direction um, but in terms of how media affects somebody's psychology there's a whole lot that's out there on that Marshall McLuhan media ecology stuff that I can I'll, as soon as I can like google some things and get some books <laughs> I can pass them your way so uh, I think this will be the last question because I know dinner time is, is, is coming soon and I don't want to hold anybody so um, I think it's so interesting because I like the blog post on Mockingbird that that I discovered like uh -huh. y'all far from um, was about like the blessed mess and like mm -hmm. the I don't know I mean I'm sure y'all read it but yeah. um, I just I feel like it's such a fine line especially like I have two young children and mm -hmm. so and that I stay at home with. And sure. um, I feel like the people that I see on Facebook or Instagram, they're either, it's like their kids are 
always in the cutest things and like never have a bow out of place. Oh yeah. Or it's like the opposite and they're like night 12 of feeding my kids chits for dinner and my husband's an <laughs> asshole and like I'm about you know like and oh, so yeah. oh, it's yeah. so like it's so like hard to find that line of like mm. being authentic but mm. not you know yeah. not being just horrible oh, yeah. <laughs> so I don't I don't know I guess it's just it's very this this has been very interesting because mm. of like my whole way of being here was because of reading that post. And I just yeah. happened to live in Brooklyn. Sure, yeah. And somebody on Facebook linked to that post. So. Oh, thank you. It was <laughs> <laughs> my My, like, three years of running the Facebook page now validated everybody. Um, so. No, thank you. I, I uh, that whole, the whole world of mommy blogging is such, it's so ripe for this, where um, you have to, the, the polar opposites you described of uh, my kids are perfect or life is horrible. Um, both of those things are trying to get at the same fear of, am I a bad parent at the end of the day? Exactly. Like, am I, am, like, it's like, am I a bad parent because my kids are eating Doritos for the 12th night in a row? Or am I a bad parent? Or am like, look, I'm not a bad parent because my, my children are, are turning out great. Um, right. Either way, you're like putting yourself on stage yeah. and, you know, so anyway. Um, so I, I'll conclude by saying I'm not a mommy and I don't blog, so I don't have any good answers for you in terms of how to like deal with that. But uh, if you keep asking around here, at Mockingbird, like I I know plenty of uh, young mothers who are really in tune with this, who would be sh be happy to uh, speak more with some authority on that. So, well, thank you again for your time. Uh, uh, dinner is served, I believe, downstairs. I'm hoping to let you out before all the other groups, so you'll like me better because you got food first. Um, <laughs> thanks again for your time, and. Uh, We'll see you at dinner.